Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Apologies for the delay on this episode, but moving across the world is surprisingly difficult. But we're back to normal this episode after the special one last time, and we're going to talk about the deaths of two very significant Merovingian kings, Guntram and Childebert II. Guntram's death marks the end of an era, as he was the last surviving son of Clothar I. It also ushers Childebert into a period of ascendancy in the kingdoms, cut unexpectedly short by his untimely death. But there is still a lot to talk about with these two men passing, so let's dive in with episode 72, The Death of Two Kings. Let's start with the death of Guntram, which had profound consequences for the Frankish realm. Edward James gives us a great, succinct description of Guntram's legacy as king. Quote, Guntram proclaimed himself as elder statesman and peacemaker, but his ambitions were perhaps not wholly selfless. End quote. As we've seen over our many episodes that covered Guntram, he is a complex and multifaceted historical figure. On the one hand, I think his holy reputation is mostly undeserved. He was just a moderately pious king who respected the church. On the other hand, at points, he clearly did exercise high-minded ideals of peace and familial stability. An example being his overtures to both the Chilperic and Sigebert branches of the family. On a third hand, as James points out, he definitely took several actions for his own self-interest at the expense of allies, including his own heir, Childebert II. It is a bit sad that we don't get to hear Gregory's obituary for Guntram. While his bias means we could not have taken it as fact, it would still have been an interesting account of the king's life. While Gregory's account of the king had always been rosy-tinged, he had still recorded some of the more distasteful parts of Guntram's life. James argues that Guntram would have served as, quote, the exact antithesis to Chilperic, end quote, for Gregory, and that he, quote, gives hints that Guntram was the nearest approach to an ideal king, end quote. Perhaps James is right, though I tend to think Gregory's account would have had at least a few wrinkles and hints that an eagle-eyed reader might have found. But still, it is only speculation at this point. What we can say for certain is that Guntram's reign was very important in Merovingian history. He was not as powerful or remembered as gloriously as his father Clothar, or even his nephew Clothar II. But he was crucial to the continuation of the Merovingian line. This was perhaps his biggest contribution. Guntram was not a warrior, and he only took to the battlefield himself in the most dire circumstances, like Chilperic's invasion of Burgundy. This is not necessarily a bad thing. If anything, in his early reign, the Merovingian kingdoms were beginning to tear themselves apart, 
due to the unchecked ambition and aggression of his brothers. Even before the death of Charibert, but especially after it, the aggression of both Sigebert and Chilperic threatened to destroy the fabric of Merovingian rule. We have talked extensively about how the chaos in the realm spiked during the shared rule of the sons of Clothar I. The constant warfare and cutthroat politics sowed discord in all aspects of life in the kingdoms, affecting everyone from the ambitious royals all the way down to the suffering peasants. A normal state struggles to maintain its functions during times of conflict. The rickety Merovingian state was never going to fare well. Don't get me wrong, the early Merovingian system did have warfare as a key aspect, but this warfare was meant to happen externally, outside of the kingdoms, and bring in wealth, not destroy what wealth was already there. And, most importantly, it was meant to have brains. Especially at the height of Sigebert and Chilperic's conflict, society began to break down as ambitious nobles took the law into their own hands, and betrayal and self-interest spiked. Guntram could not stop these wars. He couldn't even stand up to his brothers. Even when Sigebert died, the conflict continued as Chilperic eventually turned his gaze on Guntram as his last remaining rival. Guntram's victory over his half-brother's invading army put the conflict on ice, rather than burying it entirely. Only Chilperic's death and Guntram's ascendancy as senior king ended the immediate causes for the decline in stability in the realm. But even then, Guntram could not reverse the trends working against him. Kingly authority solidified, but it did not grow back to what it had been under Clothar or Clovis. Nor did it grow into something else that was equally powerful. There were bigger factors at play that Guntram was not able to fight effectively. He could not stop the rise of aristocratic power, a trend that would eventually end Merovingian dominance in the kingdoms. Nor could he impose a more stable set of rules and structures for the kingdoms, though the rise of legislation and legal cases shows that he and his immediate successors certainly tried. In all these cases, Guntram paused things, put a stop to the bleeding, but he did not know how to repair the damage that had been done. To be fair to Guntram, he was not clairvoyant. I don't think anyone would have been able to massively affect the trajectory of the Merovingian state. History is not made by great men, it is made by many small and almost imperceptible shifts and changes. But if Guntram did not or could not do these things, why did I say that he was crucial to the survival of the Merovingians? Well, that is because he did at least one thing right. He ensured the continuation of the dynasty. After the destructive wars of Sigebert and Chilperic, alongside the vicious internal family politics of Fredegund and her stepsons, there were only three Merovingians left. Guntram, the underage Childebert II, 
and the infant Clothar II. Given the attrition rate of Merovingians in the previous years, you can see why Guntram was concerned. Infant mortality was high, Fredegund had already lost multiple children, and the Austrasians would definitely have liked to see the infant Clothar II never reach adulthood. Childebert II was older, but was also not safe, especially given the plots from both inside and outside of his kingdom, and the spate of political assassinations. Guntram had no sons of his own, so upon taking the mantle of senior king, he was faced with the strong possibility that the Merovingian dynasty might simply peter out entirely. By preventing open conflict between the Neustrians and Austrasians, as well as politicking to keep both kingdoms under his thumb, Guntram managed to avoid the end of his dynasty. His heavy hand might have been oppressive and often self-interested, but it ensured that the Merovingian name would survive him. Once Childbert had two sons and Clothar neared adulthood, Guntram could be much more confident in the continuation of Merovingian rule. We don't tend to get epic tales of competent administrators or steady diplomats. Guntram wasn't perfect in either of these roles either, but he was enough to keep the Merovingians afloat. His predecessors had built this rickety world, his successors would try to improve and adapt it, but he was necessary to hold it all together. Overall, I think Guntram definitely rates as one of the better Merovingian kings, in basically all metrics. Don't forget that his job was not easy. It took courage, determination, and a fairly deft political hand at points to keep the Brunhild-Fredegund feud from tearing the kingdoms apart. His legacy may have been a bit of a mixed bag, but he succeeded in his main aim, and that has to count for something. Now, enough about the old man, let's talk about his nephew, Childebert II. With how much we've had to say about him already, it might be easy to forget just how young Childebert still was. When Guntram died in 592, Childebert was around 22 years old and had only been in his majority for a few years. In many ways, he was still pretty new to this king thing, and now he had the mammoth task of ruling two kingdoms that had been becoming more and more separate. Of course, he had eager and capable help in this task, with his mother Brunhild. And you might be thinking, well, the two Austrasian royals are now in control, Guntram is gone, are they immediately going to invade Neustria and take their revenge on Fredegund and her son? The answer is a surprising no. This is probably a good point to dive into some details of Frankish politics, which will help us explain this curious non-event. The simple explanation is that they probably weren't able to. But simple explanations are often not for us, so let's get into it. Remember that this period is in the awkward period between Gregory and Fredegar, 
so we can't say too much for certain. But the traditional view is that Brunhild took the lead in actual governing, which does make sense. Edward James argues that after Childbert reached his majority in 585, Brunhild took control of Frankish politics and dominated it for most of the next three decades. I love the enthusiasm for her power, but we have already seen how things weren't quite so easy for her, and there would continue to be difficulties for her down the road. Nevertheless, James is correct that we're now in the period of peak Brunhild. He notes that Brunhild's traditional reputation is that of a so-called Romanizer. This means that she was seen to favour those of Roman descent for political office, and that she engaged in traditionally Roman governmental reforms of centralisation and tax reform. Both accusations are probably broadly true. We'll meet her Gallo-Roman allies like Protadius later, and she definitely had an interest in exercising royal power in a more expansive and invasive way. James notes that both of these factors, quote, antagonized the Austrasian and Burgundian aristocracies, end quote. It was this antipathy and potential opposition from the local aristocracies that probably put an end to any immediate plans of open warfare with Neustria. There are a variety of reasons for this beyond just opposition to Brunhild and her governing style. We'll see this more as we move into the late Merovingian period, but local aristocrats did not like it when the kingdoms were united. They enjoyed divided, weak royal rule, where they could leverage their local power to effect change and protect their positions and wealth. The worst case scenario for them was a powerful king who was able to dominate and act with strong central authority. Then they would become only a few among a chorus of regional aristocrats who were all constantly fighting for attention from the king, allowing the king to safely play them against each other or to ignore them as he wished. Childebert and Brunhild worked hard to bring the aristocrats to heel with a few tactics. The first, and probably the biggest, was the consistent flow of royal legislation. Just from the few years in which he ruled both kingdoms, we have three surviving edicts from Childebert. The first was issued in Andernach in 594, the second in Maastricht in 595, and the third from Cologne in 596. Ian Wood notes that these were probably part of an annual gathering in consultation with the magnates of his combined realms. On first glance, issuing edicts in consultation rather than independently might look like a sign of weakness, but by forcing his aristocracy to gather where he asked and take part in discussions on his terms, Childebert was sending clear signals of his personal authority. Those who came were also forced to acknowledge their place as simply advisors, an inferior place to Childebert, who acted as the sole legislator.
This legislation was not just about symbolism, though. The edicts were specific and practical, designed to delve deep and solve specific debates in the law. In Andernach, the edict focused on inheritance and incest, important topics for the landed aristocracy. At Maastricht, it was ownership, rape, murder, the subversion of justice in court, and the death penalty, a very busy session. And at Cologne, the focus was on the execution of thieves, the pursuit of criminals, and work on a Sunday. The ability and intent to legislate on specific areas like this shows a strong effort to centralize power by eliminating doubt or flexibility in the law in different regions and instead making clear rulings for all in Childebert's kingdoms. This is a powerful expression of royal authority in both his old Austrasian and his new Burgundian kingdoms. There is something to be said for the type of legislation that Childebert did as well. Guntram and Chilperic had begun this transition to a recognisable governing focus for the kings, but Childebert brought something new. In the words of Wood, quote, Childebert's legislation is remarkable not only for its range, but also for its clear dependence on Roman law. End quote. Similar to, and probably influenced by, his mother Brunhild, Childebert seemed to pull heavily from Roman sources when crafting decisions in his new, hands-on form of government. This is a somewhat traditional view, and older historians can overstate it a little, but the evidence is definitely there. At several points, Childebert's decisions are pulled straight from Roman sources. This is not necessarily a sign of the over-Romanization of the king, though. Much Burgundian law was very Roman in nature, and pulling from the oldest and most comprehensive legal tradition around is not such a silly idea, honestly. The other area Childebert and Brunhild were very active was foreign relations. Internationally, Childebert was seen as a very powerful Merovingian king and he had a hand in relations with the Lombards, Visigoths, and the Eastern Romans. Probably the best evidence, though, is not about Childebert's power. Once again, it's about Brunhild's. A series of letters have survived between Brunhild and the new activist Pope Gregory the Great. Gregory is one of the most famous and well-respected popes of all time, and his reign was filled with stories of him strengthening the papacy and its reputation and secular power. In this series of letters, though, we get a clear picture of Brunhild's international reputation, as Gregory bends over backwards to please the queen and keep her support in the region. Wood argues that the letters, quote, make it quite clear that the Pope regarded Brunhild as a dominant force, perhaps the dominant force, in the kingdom, end quote. He even supported one of her allies at her behest to become Bishop of Autun, granting him 
Helium. An unusual occurrence given that Altun wasn't a metropolitan sea and thus shouldn't have qualified for such treatment. Gregory the Great did this because he believed Brunhild was the best person to help him with his planned reforms in the Frankish church and his mission to the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms across the channel. And it seems he was pleased with the progress, apparently saying that Brunhild contributed more to the success of that mission than anyone except God. In an even more revealing twist, he said nothing about Brunhild's open and obvious intervention into church affairs, something he was railing against in other parts of Christendom. Now, back to Childebert. I hope this hasn't been too complicated, and you're able to see how Childebert was actually very powerful and managed to make a mark on the realm, despite his very limited time and power. It is largely a different kind of power than we are used to on this podcast, a more technical and less warlike one. Don't get it twisted though, Childebert still demonstrated enough hard power and strength, and such things were still important. But historically, his legacy as a legislator and a transition figure into the late Merovingian period is more important. Okay, before we wrap up, we need to deal with one last thing. The circumstances of Childebert's death. The traditional narrative is that the king and his wife were poisoned. This would certainly explain the sudden death with no prior hint of illness, and the coincidental death of his wife at the same time is certainly suspicious, but there is no way to know for sure. Thanks to the dearth of sources, we don't even have Gregory to interpret or anything, we just get to speculate. A sudden illness is certainly not out of the ordinary, and it certainly could have taken his wife around the same time. Maybe a bit of bubonic plague came back, maybe just simple dysentery, who knows, there were plenty of things that could get you. If he was poisoned, though, you may think there is an obvious candidate. Fredegund knew that each passing year meant Schildbert and Brunhild were more solidified in their position and closer and closer to being able to invade. If they had attacked her in Neustria, there was probably little she could do to stop them, and Merovingian history would have looked radically different. She had certainly been credibly accused of assassinating people in the past, and there is every reason to think that she might have done it. But, when her son finally won control of the entire realm, and captured Brunhild, he put forth a different theory. He, and others associated with his victorious branch of the family, argued that Brunhild was the real culprit. This may seem insane to us. Why would she kill her own son? But with hindsight, we can see that she was cutthroat enough to push one of her grandsons into killing the other, and she is also credibly accused of assassinations. Plus, 
she would have had easy access to Childebert and an easy scapegoat to Pinadon and Fredegund. Upon the king's death, she became regent for both of his sons, ruling both Austrasia and Burgundy herself in their names. Now, I'm not saying she did it. I personally think it's very unlikely. She and Childebert seem to have been very close, and there is no sign that he resented her massive power and influence in the realm. Plus, the obvious point, he was her son, and she had already lost a husband and been forced to fight hard to return to her son's side. But it is an interesting possibility nonetheless. Obviously, Clothar II had political motivations for making such an accusation, and he accused her of other more ludicrous deaths as well. But the possibility is still worth thinking about. Now, it's 596. Guntram and Childebert II are both dead, and there's a new paradigm in the kingdoms. A very Brunhild-centric paradigm. Let's see how it develops, starting next week. See you then. <laughs>